Welcome to another episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast. This is Dr. John David Bruce, and I am a pediatric critical care fellow here at the Medical College of Georgia. On today's episode, we will be discussing non-invasive respiratory support of the critical pediatric patient. To help with our discussion, I am pleased to be joined by Dr. Bryn Ehlers, who is a pediatric hospitalist here at the Children's Hospital of Georgia. Thanks. It's great to be here today. I'm excited to have Dr. Jean Fisher join us as well. Dr. Fisher is a professor of pediatrics and the chief of pediatric critical care at the Children's Hospital of Georgia. Welcome, Dr. Fisher. Thanks, Bren and John David. I'm happy to be part of the discussion today. As a pediatric hospitalist, a large portion of our patients are admitted due to respiratory illness. Many of these patients are successfully treated and discharged from the inpatient floor. However, we do often have those patients that decompensate and require escalating respiratory support in the ICU. That's right, Bryn. Respiratory distress and respiratory failure are leading reasons for a pediatric ICU admission, so it is important to know how and when to provide mechanical support for patients. Our discussion today will focus on helping the listeners understand the different kinds of non-invasive respiratory support, when to use them, and what to do if things are not going the way you would expect. Before we get started, I want to mention that the MCG Pediatric Podcast has published an episode on respiratory failure. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, I recommend going back and checking it out for more background on respiratory failure and the evaluation of critically ill children. Okay, John David, let's start our discussion with a clinical case. Sounds good. We have a previously healthy four-month-old female who presents to the emergency room for three days of rhinorrhea, cough, increased work of breathing, and poor oral intake. In the ER, the infant is noted to be afebrile with a normal heart rate and an oxygen saturation of 94% on room air. On physical exam, she has subcostal retractions with scattered wheezing throughout her lung fields concerning for bronchiolitis. Her respiratory rate is noted to be around 65 breaths per minute. A rapid respiratory pathogen panel returns positive for RSV, and she is admitted to the inpatient hospitalist team for supportive care with oxygen via nasal cannula. Overnight, mom calls the resident physician concerned that the infant's oxygen saturations continue to dip into the high 80s. The infant is noted to have worsening tachypnea and subcostal retractions. Despite repositioning the infant, her saturations only rise to 90% while on two liters of oxygen. The nursing staff is asking you, as the physician, what's the next step in treatment should be. Great case. Bronchiolitis, for the most part, is a mild self-limited infection that occurs in younger aged children. However, there are times when we admit children with bronchiolitis for hydration and respiratory support. These children need to be closely monitored because they can quickly progress to respiratory failure. The child that you have just described obviously needs more advanced care to improve her oxygenation. So John David, why do you think this child is having difficulty keeping her oxygenation up? Well, for starters, like you said, she has bronchiolitis, which is associated with airway obstruction and diminished lung compliance. Her viral infection has caused direct cytotoxic injury of the lung tissue, This then results in airway edema, increased mucus production, and necrosis of the airway epithelial cells, which ultimately leads to diminished lung compliance. That's right. The infant has to overcome the decreased compliance by breathing harder, which could worsen the air trapping caused by bronchiolitis. This infant really could benefit from more advanced care with non-invasive respiratory support. So let's first explain to listeners what we mean by non-invasive respiratory support. As the name suggests... It is a group of respiratory support methods that do not require the use of an artificial airway. In other words, avoiding endotracheal intubation. The different methods include high-flow nasal cannula, 
continuous positive airway pressure, or CPAP, and non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, also known as NIPPV, often shortened to NIV. The goal in using non-invasive respiratory support is to treat respiratory insufficiency in patients with acute and chronic conditions that can impair respiratory drive, decrease lung inflation, and alter gas exchange. The advantages for reducing the use of an artificial airway are reduced risk of nosocomial infections, decreased sedation requirements, and prevention of airway manipulation and potential for acute as well as long-term tracheal injury. So let's talk about each of the modes of non-invasive respiratory support. But first, John David, let's review respiratory devices before high-flow nasal cannula for the listeners. Sure. Low-flow respiratory devices consist of standard nasal cannula, simple masks, partial rebreather masks, and non-rebreather face masks. These options allow for different levels of oxygen content delivery and flow. However, low-flow systems are limited since they provide oxygen at flow rates that are lower than the patient's inspiratory demands. Exactly. In contrast, high-flow nasal cannula provides heated and humidified air and oxygen at flow rates greater than 2 liters per minute. High-flow nasal cannula reduces the work of breathing and improves oxygenation by improving lung recruitment and decreasing dead space. Could you clarify for us what you mean by dead space? Certainly. Dead space refers to the volume of ventilated air that doesn't participate in gas exchange. In other words, it doesn't aid in oxygenation or the removal of carbon dioxide. The total dead space volume is made up of anatomic dead space plus alveolar dead space. Anatomic dead space refers to the areas of the conducting respiratory tract where gas exchange does not normally occur, such as the nose, trachea, and bronchi, while alveolar dead space is made up of areas of the lung where gas exchange should be occurring, but doesn't. In lung diseases such as acute respiratory distress syndrome and pneumonia, total dead space increases due to an increase in alveolar dead space. When we have a situation where blood is flowing to areas of the lungs that is not exchanging oxygen and carbon dioxide, we call this ventilation perfusion or VQ mismatch. It's also important to point out that sometimes the opposite can be true. For example, in the situation of an acute pulmonary embolus, the alveoli may be working fine, but there is no blood flow to these alveoli, so gas exchange cannot occur. This is also a form of VQ mismatch. So respiratory dead space is essentially areas in the respiratory tract that do not exchange oxygen and carbon dioxide. Some of the dead space is anatomical, but if there is increased alveolar dead space where gas exchange should be occurring but isn't. This can result in decreased oxygenation or hypoxia, which is due to VQ mismatch, where basically your lungs receive blood flow without oxygen or oxygen without blood flow. If ventilation and perfusion of the lungs are not equal, this can result in a low blood oxygen levels. Exactly. So back to our infant admitted with bronchiolitis. High-flow nasal cannula is a good option because it has been shown to decrease alveolar dead space. That's right. Studies have found that infants with bronchiolitis who receive high-flow oxygen have significantly lower rates of requiring further increased oxygen support than patients on standard oxygen therapy. I know that the use of high flow is also helpful in other patients with respiratory distress, including status asthmaticus, pneumonia, cardiomyopathy, post-exhibition, and neonatal respiratory distress syndrome. So, Dr. Fisher, what are the other benefits of high flow nasal cannula? Besides decreasing respiratory distress while increasing oxygenation, high flow nasal cannula has been found to decrease intubation rates and length of hospital stay. It is generally well tolerated and found to have a similar efficacy to CPAP. 
However, a consideration when using high-flow nasal cannula is that it is controlled by flow rate, so the pressures generated within the airway cannot be measured or controlled. That's a good thing to keep in mind. So it differs from CPAP, where you can control the pressure being provided to the patient, right? Correct. CPAP, or continuous positive airway pressure, provides positive pressure throughout all phases of the respiratory cycle. So, John David, what do you know about CPAP? Well, CPAP works to improve oxygenation by keeping the small airways open and preventing complete emptying of the lungs during exhalation. This decreases the amount of pressure needed to initiate a breath and reopen the alveoli during inhalation. This then decreases the work of the inspiratory muscles, which improves work of breathing. Great job. But remember, patients on CPAP need to have an adequate respiratory drive, as the positive pressure being provided does not change between inhalation and exhalation. So you're telling me that CPAP might be helpful for a patient in respiratory failure by providing enough pressure to maintain airway patency, which would alleviate some of the patient's work of breathing, but not a great option for a sedated patient who is not initiating breaths on their own. That's right. So let's say that our four-month-old patient was placed on a high-flow nasal cannula, and she showed improvement, including stable oxygen saturation and a decrease in her work of breathing. But then the next day, you were called into the room again because the infant is starting to have increased work of breathing specifically subcostal retractions and now grunting while even on high-flow nasal cannula. You intervene with a nasal suction and reposition of the infant's airway with minimal improvement. A stat chest x-ray is ordered and it shows atelectasis in the right upper lobe. So this is when CPAP should be considered, right? Yes, either CPAP or BiPAP. Since CPAP works to keep the airways open, improve clearance of secretions, and reduce the work of breathing, it is found to be beneficial in infants with bronchiolitis. So for our case specifically, since she is having atelectasis or volume loss, CPAP should work to improve aeration in the obstructed lung space? Yes. This goes back to our earlier discussion on VQ mismatch. The patient is having blood flow to alveoli, but is not appropriately ventilating because airflow cannot get into the collapsed alveoli. The pressure provided by CPAP counteracts this obstruction, which then allows for ventilation to occur and resolves the VQ mismatch. Got it. That makes sense. So how do we decide on what CPAP settings to start at when a patient is in respiratory failure? With CPAP, generally pressure constant delivery devices are preferred. This means that a constant pressure is set, which provide variable flow rates based on resistance of the airways. Generally, adequate therapeutic CPAP levels in infants are between 5 to 8 centimeters of water. However, based on the disease and lung compliance, patients may require increased levels of CPAP. One of the main goals of using CPAP or BiPAP is to increase the end expiratory pressure, the pressure remaining in the airways at the end of exhalation, above the critical opening pressure of the alveoli. This leads to a decrease in atelectasis, alveolar dead space, and ultimately VQ mismatching. It's important to remember for all oxygen delivery devices, when adequate levels are achieved, the work of breathing should then improve. John David, what should we look for on our physical exam to know that a patient is responding well to our interventions? So on a physical exam, we should see improved oxygen saturations, normalized respiratory rate, and decreased retractions. What if there's no improvement? There is no immediate improvement in the work of breathing. A blood gas may be helpful to evaluate for gradual improvement in gas exchange. Good answer. Earlier, it was mentioned increased levels of CPAP may be required based on the patient's lung compliance. Could you explain what that means a little bit more? 
Lung compliance is the extent to which the lungs will expand for each unit increase in transpulmonary pressure. John David, what factors influence lung compliance? That would be elasticity of the lung tissue, surface tension, surfactant, age, and lung volume. Exactly. So certain lung diseases decrease lung compliance, such as those that cause fibrosis, which decreases elasticity. A newborn respiratory distress syndrome is due to low surfactant, which increases lung surface tension. So if there is decreased lung compliance, there will be a reduction in functional residual capacity, which is the volume of air remaining in the lungs at the end of expiration. This is important because if the functional residual capacity falls below the volume of air required by the lungs to keep the alveoli open, those areas of the lungs will collapse and not participate in gas exchange. I see. So you are saying that since lung compliance is equal to the lung volume over the transpulmonary pressure, poorly compliant lungs will require more pressure to expand the lungs and prevent atelectasis. Yes, and if atelectasis has already occurred, there is a decreased lung compliance due to the decreased volume, and then more pressure will be required to open up the collapsed areas. It seems like it could lead to a vicious cycle. Okay, awesome. So let's get back to our clinical case. Let's say that after placing our patient on CPAP, oxygen saturations improved from 87% to 93%. Tachypnea is also better. She was breathing at 70 breaths per minute, but now is down to 50 breaths per minute. But I am still worried because she is still having subcostal retractions and grunting. What's the blood gas? The blood gas is notable for a pH of 7.25 and a PCO2 of 65, which is consistent with a respiratory acidosis. You're describing a patient that is now in type 2 or hypercarbic respiratory failure. Could you explain that a little bit more? First, let's talk about how respiratory failure occurs. Respiratory failure occurs when the respiratory system fails to maintain gas exchange. It's classified into two types, either type 1 and type 2, and this is based on blood gas abnormalities. A patient with type 1 is usually acute and considered in hypoxemic respiratory failure. These patients are tachypnic, but still able to remove adequate carbon dioxide out of the blood. They just can't maintain adequate blood oxygenation. Gas exchange is impaired at the level of the alveolar capillary membrane. Our patient was in this state initially, but with her increasing respiratory symptoms, she is now progressing to type 2 respiratory failure. Yes, Type 2 respiratory failure is when the patient is unable to increase their respiratory rate in response to hypoxia or decreased blood oxygen levels. This results in increased carbon dioxide levels, also known as hypercapnia. So for our patient, we should escalate respiratory support, and the next option would be non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. John David, what do you know about non-invasive positive pressure ventilation? Non-invasive positive pressure ventilation uses two different pressure levels, one for inspiration and one for expiration. This enhances movement of air into and out of the lungs. That's right. It's meant to mimic invasive ventilation using short inspiration times, variable respiratory rates, peak pressure, and positive and expiratory pressure settings. For this mode of ventilation, there is the option to use a patient-triggered mode. This provides inspiratory pressure when it senses that the patient is attempting to take a breath. However, the downside to this is that the patient must have a normal respiratory drive and be able to effectively trigger breaths. Another option is a timed mode that has a set breath frequency. However, this could lead to asynchrony between the patient and the ventilator. 
So non-invasive positive pressure ventilation basically gives you two different positive pressure levels with a higher level of pressure being given through inspiration. So how do you decide on the different settings on NIPPV? There are several settings that need to be considered when setting NIPPV. Respiratory rate needs to be at a frequency that is appropriate for the patient's age. EPAP is expiratory positive airway pressure. It provides pressure during exhalation, which keeps the airways open until the next breath. The EPAP is correlated to oxygenation and should be titrated based on oxygen saturation. It should be increased if there is decreased lung volume. And then you have the IPAP, which is inspiratory positive airway pressure, with an increased pressure delivered during inspiration. This directly increases volume delivery with the goal to achieve adequate chest expansion and carbon dioxide removal. Finally, inspiratory time can be set. This determines the amount of time per breath spent in inspiration. Long inspiratory times could lead to poor exhalation and breath stocking, while short inspiratory times could lead to inadequate chest expansion and poor gas exchange. So if I have a patient on NIPPV who is having decreased oxygen saturations, I should increase my EPAP. And if my patient is hypercarbic or having poor lung expansion, I should increase my IPAP. You got it. When evaluating a patient, how do you decide which non-invasive mode to use? That's important to individualize for each patient. CPAP is often used in patients with alveolar or upper airway collapse, where the continuous pressure improves oxygenation by keeping the airways open. A good example would be an obstructive sleep apnea. NIPPV is used in a variety of settings to treat worsening respiratory failure, such as pneumonia and other lung disease, neuromuscular disease, or potentially even post-extubation management. Besides treating acute or chronic respiratory failure to prevent intubation, non-invasive ventilation has been found to be a good bridge to facilitate a successful extubation in patients who were previously failing extubation. So how do you decide on when to successfully wean ventilatory support? Overall, weaning can start when the patient is showing signs of improvement from the disease processes that led to the respiratory failure. This is typically based on clinical appearance. The first step in weaning respiratory support is to decrease the FiO2 based on good oxygen saturations. Typically, we try to get that down to less than or equal to 40% oxygen. The next step then is to wean pressures to minimal levels while the patient is still showing good lung expansion, gas exchange, and a normal work of breathing. I think a good thing to keep in mind when weaning is that similarly to how a patient may need to escalate through the modes of respiratory support based on their clinical need, patients may also be required to de-escalate respiratory support modes while weaning. For example, a patient may be able to wean off CPAP but still requires a high-flow nasal cannula and then a standard nasal cannula before they can return to room air. When would non-invasive ventilation not be appropriate for a patient? The primary contraindication to non-invasive ventilation is treatment failure, worsening respiratory failure, and acute respiratory distress syndrome, also known as ARDS. Other reasons to remove a patient from certain modes would be complications such as skin ulceration. John David, what are other contraindications you can think of to starting non-invasive ventilation? Contraindications to starting non-invasive ventilation would be conditions such as unrepaired congenital diaphragmatic hernia and untreated pneumothorax, as well as facial abnormalities or injuries that could lead to problems using certain device interfaces. 
That's great. Patients with severe respiratory depression, cardiovascular instability, or increased intracranial pressure will also likely need further airway and respiratory support and should be intubated. The patient should be evaluated neurologically as well, since if they have poor levels of alertness, they are at risk for poor respiratory drive and a loss of airway patency. Any patient with a GCS less than 8 or a rapid decline in GCS by 3 or more should be intubated. So what are the major complications from non-invasive ventilation? The risk of a pneumothorax should always be kept in mind. This is especially true if the IPEP is set very high or is not decreased during the weaning phase as compliance is improving and the volumes delivered are increasing. Another major problem would be if a patient were to have a leak either through a poorly fitting mask or through an open mouth if a nasal interface is used. This can allow oxygen to escape and prevent the patient from receiving the set pressure or volume. This can prevent treatment of respiratory failure and also decrease the ability of the machine to sense when the patient is triggering a breath. John David, how would you know if there is a leak and how can it be prevented? Well, with NIPPV, if a pressure is set, the inspiratory volume will vary based on the resistance of the respiratory system. This inspiratory volume is measured as well as the expiratory volume. So if the volume that the patient exhales does not match the inspiratory volume, there's a leak in the circuit. Leak compensation is a mechanism that attempts to increase the inspiratory flow to deliver the set inspiratory pressure if a leak is detected. Another way to prevent leaks is to choose a different interface, such as a face mask instead of a nasal mask, or ensure that the mask fits appropriately. It is also possible to use a chin strap to prevent leaks from the mouth if a nasal mask is being used. The use of RAM cannula has been a successful mode of nasal positive pressure delivery. It has an increased diameter compared to the traditional nasal cannula and has been found to transmit around 60 to 70% of the intended positive pressure. So, with children, sedation is often required in order to keep them comfortable and compliant with non-invasive ventilation. However, this also puts them at increased risk if they were to aspirate. What can be done to reduce this risk of aspiration? You bring up an excellent point. In children, risk of aspiration is not an absolute contraindication for non-invasive ventilation. However, steps should be taken to mitigate these risks. It is often best to select a nasal mask if there is an increased risk of aspiration. This decreases the likelihood that gastric contents would accumulate in a face mask and cause aspiration. Other ways to decrease aspiration risk are to vent the stomach with a nasogastric or orogastric tube, to elevate the head of the bed, and to hold feeds while on high-flow ventilation, although there is increasing experience and literature to support enteral nutrition on both high-flow nasal cannula and non-invasive ventilation. You also mentioned earlier that one of the reasons to consider removing a patient from NIPPV is skin breakdown. How can we prevent this? That's right. Skin breakdown is an important complication to keep in mind. This can range from superficial discoloration to very serious pressure ulcerations. One way to reduce skin ulceration is to choose an appropriate interface. Skin breakdown has been found to be more severe along the nasal bridge with oronasal masks. So changing to nasal prongs or a face mask could improve skin findings. It is also important to maintain good skincare protocols, Frequent and careful skin evaluations can help identify signs of skin breakdown and appropriate skin hydration and treatment should be used if damage is identified. 
that's good to keep in mind. Wow, we've covered a lot of information today, but it's time to wrap up today's episode. Thank you, Dr. Fisher and Dr. Ehlers for working through our discussion today. Let's wrap up today's episode by going over our key points for our listeners. Sure, I will get us started. First, the goal in using non-invasive respiratory support is to treat respiratory failure without the use of an artificial airway. Three major modalities exist when thinking about non-invasive ventilation, high-flow nasal cannula, CPAP, and NIPPV. High-flow nasal cannula provides humidified air and oxygen at flow rates greater than 2 liters per minute to improve oxygenation. CPAP provides a continuous pressure throughout all phases of the respiratory cycle to keep the airways open, while NIPPV provides different pressures during inhalation and exhalation. Non-invasive ventilation can be used for a variety of causes of acute and chronic respiratory failure, including asthma, bronchiolitis, obstructive sleep apnea, pneumonia, and post-extubation management. Worsening respiratory failure despite non-invasive ventilation may require escalation of respiratory support to intubation and mechanical ventilation. Complications may arise while using non-invasive ventilation, such as pneumothorax, air leak, ventilator asynchrony, aspiration, and skin ulceration. These complications are important to keep in mind while caring for a patient on non-invasive ventilation, and strategies such as an appropriate mask selection, aspiration precautions, and good skin care should be utilized to reduce the risk of these complications. All right, and thanks to you both for today's great discussion. Additional thanks to Dr. Will Cagle, Dr. Zachary Hodges, and Dr. Rebecca Yang, who provided editing and peer review of today's discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. Clinical vignette cases presented are based on hypothetical patient scenarios. Free CME credit is available for today's episode. Follow the link on our website for access. We look forward to speaking to you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.